Hey, it's the Man Fuse Podcast. I'm Kay Lee. I'm sitting here with my boy, Ben H. This is part two of Ben H.'s time in Iraq during the War on Terror. And today we're going to focus in on a place that he describes as hell on earth, the Abu Ghraib prison. And he's also going to shed some light on how Iowasa is helping him with PTSD. Okay, here we go. You were an interrogator part of the time at the Abu Ghraib prison. I, w- I was made in, into an interrogator. Uh, the, the title was interrogator's assistant. And so I'd work directly with someone whose key job was an interrogator and learn how to do that from them. And then, and then we, were, we were cleared to go do those things as well. Um, but, I, you know, my job in the Army was, was not an interrogator. As a matter of fact, my job in the Army was a 96 hotel. It's like a common ground station operator. It's the operator of this uh, radar system that puts down telemetry from the battlefield and shows tanks and things like that. Well, by the time we got to Iraq, it was pretty much an irrelevant technology. So we were just kind of open for whatever they needed us for. And they would constantly ask for volunteers for things. And I always volunteered for things and um, and had a good time doing that. But ultimately, uh, Abu Ghraib was a bit of a different situation. So give me your impression when you first it's a big prison, right? Yeah. So when you first laid your eyes on this thing, yeah. what were your thoughts? It was the worst thing I'd ever seen. And I've already been in country. I've already been in Iraq for about eight months. And you have to understand the difference between what you may see here in the United States, kind of the um, society and landscape and architecture you see there. I mean, just in the regular town or, or a neighborhood, you know, compared to the United States, what I was used to at the time, you know, you're, you're thinking definitely third world, but maybe even further back than that, because it was almost like going back 200 years before before a lot of the technology that we have now was invented. I mean, you know, a lot of their waterways are still made of wood and go miles and miles are these wooden gutter looking things that just carry water to the villages from the rivers. And I mean, so it's very, it's very remote. Abu Ghraib was um, terrifying. It was, it was a place that just the look of it was, was, it looked like hell on earth, um, and it was in the middle of nowhere, kind of. It was uh, it was in between a road called Highway One, which was a very very dangerous road between Baghdad and Fallujah. It was about halfway between Baghdad and Fallujah, so it was actually in a very key location. At the time we had like ten thousand prisoners there, and there were only about three or four hundred soldiers. Saddam Hussein reigned for approximately thirty years, and um, and during that time. He, he ran a pretty brutal uh, dictatorship. Human rights there wasn't really a thing. They no, it really pray. wasn't. And, and, it, and it was even worse than that. It's more like a North Korean type. It's more like stuff you hear in North Korea where, you know, I was told a story one time by an Iraqi that said, hey, look, you know, when Saddam was in power, if you said something and your neighbor reported you for saying something, the police car would come and pick you up from your house They'd take you. They'd bring you here to Abu Ghraib. They'd interrogate you. They'd beat you. And then they'd put a bullet in your head. And then they'd send the shell casing to your family with a you know 25-cent invoice to be paid for the bullet they used on you. And that was a common occurrence. So you can only imagine what happened to real criminals and um, real people who were disrupting society or trying to um, thwart the regime and, and things of that nature. Well, this is where they were sent. Gotcha. For all of those 30 years, this is where all the dirty work was carried out. 
for Saddam's regime, and they estimate over 3 million people were executed here in 30 years. And tortured. Tortured, executed. We're in the middle of the desert, basically, and there's just like high grass growing all around this place, and they told us it's from mass graves. Um, because the number of people that were killed there, now- That, we, that provides a good fertilizer. Well, yeah, it actually did. And, 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 you know, interesting, they made these huge barriers out of dirt, like you can imagine like a big chicken wire, right? And then put canvas inside of it. Uh-huh. Say it's five feet tall, five feet square, right? So you got a big five foot square. And then you get a backhoe to come in and fill it up with dirt. And then they stack those. And those are barricades for, you know, sniper fire, mortar round, shrapnel, whatever it is that, that we're experiencing. We got all that every day. You could sit and you could pick through this dirt. And I'm saying anywhere, anywhere on the property. And this is a five mile, the perimeter of the Walls five miles, and you could dig human bones just right out of the topsoil. Jaw bones, finger bones, leg bones, arm bones. I mean, the whole ground was just bones. I mean, it was a it was a massive boneyard. So the wind would blow, or a storm, a windstorm would come in, and it would just expose probably more and more. Well, it's not stuff. like you'd see a skeleton like an archaeological dig or something like that. But I mean, you could literally. I mean, there's no trees, there's no sticks. So it looks like a stick. It's a bone. And you know. so, like, I looked at pictures of yeah. the, the inside of this prison. Yeah. And it looked like there was, like, blood on the walls. Yeah. It just looked like... It was terrible, man. Every room had at least hooks in the floor, hooks in the ceilings, hooks on the walls. Um, some of the rooms were, like, dungeons. I mean, it was... Um, it, it was a, about a terrifying scene as you could as you could possibly imagine. We lived inside of the prison, so it was so bad. Like we were getting attacked so frequently because you had the opposition, the foreign fighters, not the Iraqi people, but mostly the foreign fighters and some Iraqi people too who were Saddam loyalists. We got ten thousand troops, as far as they're concerned, because these people are now radicalized, right? Right. If they can get through the wall and break loose these ten thousand people, that's a big win. And they only got to get past three or 400 soldiers to do it. Now, luckily, we had better weapons than them. We had a whole ranger squad with us manning the towers that, you know, but it was all day, every day. Um, and I was there for like seven months. So you slept in the prison? Yeah. So we lived in prison cells. We actually lived in the prison cells because buildings were were built of concrete so blocks. It, it was the safest place. For it's the you. safest place to be. So we literally took our tents and our razor wire, which we usually use to build a perimeter, like if we're somewhere, boom, put up a tent, put up your razor wire, that's where you live. Set up guard posts. All the units utilized all of their tents and their razor wire and everything that we would typically stay in, and we put the prisoners in there, and then we lived in the jail. Now, we did have one cell block that was for the really, really bad guys, but everybody else was living in the tents. Those guys got killed a lot because of mortar fire. So mortar fire was just always being shot, and a mortar's the thing that, you know, you drop in Mm -hmm. the tube. And it kind of shoots out. Right, right, right. They've got an effective range, if you know what you're doing with them, about three to five kilometers. You can shoot one from a ways out. They use those a lot in Vietnam, I think. Yeah, they, they use them a lot in all conflicts because they're very effective and they're very powerful. You really got to know how to use Like, I don't personally know how to shoot one. Um, I don't have much experience shooting them. I have a lot of experience receiving them. But they're very effective because you can carry it on a backpack. You know, it's not like something you got to roll in. The actual um, thing that fires it, you yeah. can carry in a backpack. I yeah, so so yeah, so it's a big tube, and at the bottom of the tube, it's got a pin, and that pin is meant to ignite the shotgun shell, which is on the bottom of the mortar. It kind of looks like a Nerf football. The bomb is the football-looking thing. It's like five grenades. 
So there's a lot of shrapnel. Oh, it's crazy. It's bananas. So, um, you know, it's really bad. And, and the thing is that obviously you're shooting from a ways out. You're just calculating arc. Right. Right? I mean, you're just doing a trigonometry calculation, basically. So they walk them in. You hear the first one hit, you don't know where the next one's hitting because you don't know from which direction they're shooting. And sometimes they'll shoot them from multiple directions. Point being, they don't really know where they're going to land either. Right, right. So, dude, they're hitting tents full of their own countrymen, full of prisoners that that we've taken, which may or may not have been guilty of anything. You know, they were picked up because they were suspected of being guilty for some. And these people were dying and and uh man, it was just it was just horrible. And mortar rounds hitting the roof of the buildings that we were staying. I mean constantly hitting all around you when you're walking across the place, you're standing outside. I mean it's just constant, man. So when like you'd be sleeping and it'd just be like you could hear the the shells just hitting concrete. Oh yeah. The worst attack that we got was actually on Christmas. Christmas night. Really? Christmas night was like, it was bananas. It wasn't Santa coming down the chimney. It wasn't Santa coming down the chimney. <laughs> They're every day, but you really get the heat on your holidays. Because they know you're thinking about home. Your morale is low. You're thinking about your family. You're wishing you weren't there. And it's just and it's just their way of kind of fucking with you. Like, hey, I know what you celebrate. Yeah, like, hey, fuck you, man. We're going to try to fuck you up on We're this We're going to kill you on Christmas. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I have a question in... Doing a little more research, there was a lot of public outcry, I guess, at the Bush administration's use of torture. And now you had already said that Saddam Hussein, this was like his main go-to spot. Three million people potentially executed in this prison. But we apparently were torturing people in this prison. So, I mean, so they say. I mean, I guess that's where the whole waterboarding came to light was that um i guess the bush administration was using tactics that a lot of people on the hill were not cool with to be honest with you i am not opposed to the death penalty yeah i have proof that someone is a real bad motherfucker and Mm. is coordinating some really bad shit yeah if we need to get information my way of thinking is right i don't give a fuck if you torture him yeah but a lot of people don't see it that way. Right. And, and I respect their opinions. Yeah. You, you know, I mean, it's not that I don't value human life, but if getting this information out of this person, if you yeah. can, is going to save a lot of lives, I feel like we're on the side of right versus wrong. Yes. But, you know, that's, like I said, everyone's got their opinion. It's like an asshole. Well, you've got, you've got, you learn when you go to um, war with America whether you are with or against America, that America uh, follows what's called the Geneva Code. And the Geneva Code is basically combat laws. Then you have rules of engagement. And the rules of engagement are relative to the Geneva Code, different, different aspects of the Geneva Code. So like the interrogation tactics and things that you're allowed to use are pretty clearly defined through that. The issue we had at Abu Ghraib was was a, was a leadership issue. There was a couple things. Uh, well, it was leadership and it was lack of leadership, right? So I, I don't know what you call that, but it's still a leadership issue because really aspects that were highlighted in the media, those were military police that were doing those things. The military police are the ones who kept this cell block, right? So that's number one. Number two, it, it was a joint operation. It wasn't like one unit had control of this thing. You had a little bit of people from an MP unit. You had a little bit of people from a military intelligence unit. You had people from a ranger unit. You had people from cook unit. You had, so you had, because it was so bad that not one unit could occupy this because their, their deaths and their, 
their fatalities and their um, their wounded would be way too high. So a lot of times when you have a really hot zone, they'll send in pieces of units to create a joint operation so that maybe it's 10% from this unit, 10% from this. So if half of the people that one unit sends gets good, like in my case, I was sent to replace one of 13 people that got taken out from my unit. So then they sent 13 of us back in. You see what I'm saying? Right, right, right. So but all there, the units there... that were there were constantly doing that, but it was it was calculating less percentages per unit. So the issue is that I didn't, in charge? I didn't have leadership there. We had our own hierarchy. I mean, rank is rank, but I don't know any of these people, you know, and, and okay, here's my sergeant, but he's from a National Guard Reserve unit in Utah. It's a bunch of Mormons. So they're not looking for me. I'm not looking for them, but I've got to be over here at this time. I got people looking for me over there, but they're part of a different unit. And then I've got to report over here. You know what I'm saying? So so not one person, so if you took 10% from like five different squads or, or whatever, or, there wouldn't be one leader necessarily in charge of all those people? Or? Well, there would, but everybody got tasked to different jobs because you kind of had to fill in where they needed something. They were like, Heidenreich, you can talk good. You're an interrogator assistant now. I'm like, oh, okay. So I linked up with this guy that was like a legit, you know, interrogator, right? And I went and I interrogated people with him. And I helped him. I was like his 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 assistant. Did, did and you, then did you do the good cop, bad cop? Yeah, we did all the things within the rules. Personally, I never saw any of those things that were reported. I never heard about any of those things while they were happening. So you never heard about people getting waterboarded necessarily? No. So that was a lot of after hour stuff, I guess, that was happening within the cell block where the worst people were on the MPs. Now, a lot of people got in a lot of trouble for that kind of thing. But I think the the view that you don't really see is from inside of this situation where you have 10,000 prisoners and 400 soldiers, and you've got some really bad guys who have done some really, really bad things to American soldiers. And we've got the worst of the worst here, and we're trying to get information out of them that can that can help. And, you know, a lot of the tactics that were used were like, you only let them sleep for a certain amount of time, play like loud music, in their cell or, you know, um, you know, you put a face, it's cold outside. So you don't give them a blanket and you put a fan on their cell for a certain amount of time. You just make it uncomfortable for them. So you, you know? guys would do ex would you guys would execute stuff like that. Well, the interrogator would say to the MP, Hey, let's do this, that, and the other thing within the rules, right? See and if they can get them to break. I really only did that for like a month and a half because I came up with an idea and I was like, you know what? These guys aren't being transported properly. Nobody knows whose responsibility it is to get them from the jail site to the interrogation site, which was a dangerous hall, and then back from the interrogation site to the jail site. So it wasn't at the same place, the interrogation? Well, it was within the five-mile radius, but no, it was completely two different buildings. The interrogation sites were like trailers that were built out as interrogation sites with like big barricades surrounding them, and then the the cell block or the where you'd get the prisoners from, you're either going over to the tents and checking them out or you're going over to the cell block and checking oh, them so out. Oh, so you're not just walking them down the hall from there? No, uh, not at all. So, and that was dangerous, even though you're inside oh, yeah. the perimeter of the prison? Well, yeah, because we've taken sniper fire from the buildings all day, every day. You got people breaking in from the walls. You got car bombs coming into the gate. You got mortar rounds hitting you constantly. So, you know, it's hard to imagine for someone like who's never been in this kind of a situation, kind of what you're me. <laughs> well, anyone, you know, and it's nothing, it's not say, Oh, I know something, someone, no, it's just, you know, everybody has their own life experience. But as someone who has been in this situation, I can tell you that your state of mind, because what happens is it normalizes. 
Right. It just becomes normal life. And you don't really realize it until you return to quote unquote normal life, but it never leaves you. But when you're there, your state of mind, your mindset is just keyed to a different note. Heightened. It's just, yeah, it's just through the freaking roof. It's one of those things that's that's kind of very difficult to unpack unless you were really there. I can say that, you know, um, the, I can courts, imagine. the courts looked at all those cases and they made decisions. And, and you know, that's that's within the boundaries of, of the way that, that military law is handled. And, and so, like, breaking um, of that military law would be maybe considered a war crime? Maybe. I, I guess it depends on how bad it was. I mean, I know a, a number of those people went to military prison, um, you know, and a number of people but, you got know, in trouble. But, you know, what's fucked up is probably, if I had to guess, those people who went to prison, those orders probably came from somewhere up top. And they probably were the scapegoat and took the fall for shit they were ordered to do, if I had to If you were to guess. look into it, you would notice that most of the people that got in a lot of trouble were lower-ranking individuals. They have a saying in the Army, the shit rolls downhill. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, you're gonna you're gonna blame it on the subordinates. You know, or... I never told them to do that, or I, or I told them to follow the Geneva Code, and you know the rules were very clearly defined. And those are probably true statements, but unless you were there, and I'm not saying that they were right, because I, I think some of the things that they did were certainly out of out of the boundaries of what would be considered right and wrong. I never laid a hand on any of these guys. You know, I never did any of those types of things. I didn't feel the need to. In many cases, you don't know whether this person did something wrong or not. There's, because it hasn't been proven. It hasn't been proven. That's what the interrogation is for. They're trying to get information from these people. And even like, you know, I, I was in an interrogation one time with the top level Ba'ath Party officials like a Saddam. He's one of Saddam's generals. You know what I mean? You think about that. It's like, OK, well, this guy's the bad guy, obviously. Right. Ten years ago, he was a success. He went to military college. I mean, he went, he made top grades. He became a general. I mean, he's... He got promoted he, within He was Saddam's born where he was born. He lived where he lived. And, you know, he did the best he could. And the conversation of enemy is, is kind of a difficult dichotomy to wrap your head around. I did some boxing in the Army. And what I realized was that getting in the boxing ring was very interesting. It was very much this relationship like friend or foe. In one way, this person is your enemy. Right. At this present at moment. At this moment. But you don't even know them. It's going to be you or them. And ultimately, at the same time, they're kind of your friend because if they weren't there, you'd have nobody to fight. <laughs> right. <laughs> you'd have no way to victory. Right. You know, so anyways. And I then get, when you're done fighting, you hug it out. It's like, hey, dude, great fight. But obviously it's a little different with combat. But point being, it's kind of the same because you have to respect the position of your enemy. You have to respect the skills of your enemy. You have to respect all these things. You can't just walk into something without a respect for humanity. Yeah, because that general, like you said, I mean, that was an educated man. 100%. I mean, and smart, I'm sure, if he was well, one about of Saddam's like this. top if, generals. If, uh, if somebody dropped troops on the ground here in your neighborhood, what are you doing? Who wants to reach around? If you switch roles, Abu Ghraib, in, in a nutshell, was um, was very, very difficult. It was a very, uh, it was a very scary and haunted place. It's like a harrowed place for mass murder, and um, it's very feared in the country of Iraq. Abu means son of, Ghraib means the lost. It's pretty freaky, man. We detailed in part one of your journey into. Yeah thinking you were out of the army and then, you know, being sucked back in. Yeah. Um, you know, when you finally did get out, 
you take that with you, obviously, and now yeah. you're you're normalized to I think a great life and and you know yeah. all the things that you do and your family. Um, do you feel that you've ever had any PTSD from that? Like at any moment? Like yeah, you know PTSD is kind of a difficult thing I think to define because there's a lot of it's called post traumatic stress syndrome, something like yeah, or dysphoria or whatever. PTSD, post traumatic stress disorder, disorder. I mean, you've had traumatic stress in in your life. We've all had traumatic things occur in our life, whether it's a relationship thing or maybe you get in a car wreck or you find some dead guy on the side of the road or you see somebody get shot. I mean, we go through this life and it's like what I realized when I was there because I felt really bad about being there. But finally, after a few months, I just came to this realization that people have been doing this self, this stuff to each other for a long time. It's part of human nature. It's a very nasty side of human nature. And um, I think here I am 15 years later and I have, I use it as an anchor point. It's kind of subliminally, subconsciously. And it makes me less fearful of taking certain risks, which may be a good thing or it could be a bad thing. The point, because now I have a family to consider, right? But the point is that a lot of the things that I've done, a lot of the achievements that I've had in my life, and I've had more failures than I have achievements, but I continue, I will continue to push the envelope because I'm really not afraid of somebody saying no to me or someone, you know, it really isn't, I know how bad it can be. And there's a lot of people been in a lot worse situations than me. But for me, that was the that was the worst situation I've ever been. And I'm, I, I can remember the moment when I literally told myself, remember this. This is the bottom of the bucket for you. This is it. Here it is. You remember this for the rest of your life. This is the moment. And I was smoking a cigarette. I was drinking coffee. I was standing in by my bunk. In Abu Ghraib, and we were on the third floor. There were three levels, so there was just the ceiling above us. Mortar rounds were hitting about every 10 to 15 seconds. The ceiling was crumbling. Direct hits? Direct hit directly over my head, but it was on concrete. The ceiling was crumbling, so it had rocks dropping in on us. I'm standing there, if you can imagine it, with my helmet on. So I got rocks and shit bouncing off of me. I'm smoking a cigarette. It's raining. It's pouring down rain. So the rain's coming in too. Because it's not waterproof. No, because there's cracks being busted into it by the mortar rounds. I mean, you talk about loud, dude. You can't hear anything when these things hit. You got it rings your ears. In, do you, are you not? You're no, because right, no. now you're fucking deaf and you can't hear. You're army dog now. I mean, you're you're dirty. You're, you know what I'm saying? I mean, you're dirty. You're smoking a cig. You're freaking sitting there with your weapon loaded. And it gets cold at night. Drinking coffee. You're shivering. And it's just. The concrete and the water is just dropping on you. And I'm just standing there, you know, and uh, puffing a cigarette, just smoking a cig, just standing there going, Yeah, if I make it out of here, this is the fucking thing I'm going to remember. And that memory is really locked into my mind. And so, anyways, I, I think there's positive and negatives when it comes to that. You know, I have over the years dealt with, you know, just really really deep dark depression really which i don't know where it comes from i don't know from where it just hits me sometimes it's see like we've been friends for i mean almost 20 years if someone asked me about yeah. you 
uh, or to describe you, yeah. I mean, you are one of the most positive people I know. Yeah. And I have gone through some dark things myself. I haven't been at war. I haven't yeah. been away from my family. Yeah. Well, if I was away from my family, it was probably self-induced. And right. It was probably, yeah. I was probably holed up with some hooker yeah, and exactly. a bunch of coke in a back room somewhere, <laughs> right. which I'm not proud of. <laughs> no. But, um, but see, that's traumatic stress as well. I mean, that's something that you carry with you. Or poor yeah. decisions. I, I try not to carry it anymore. I try to be like, hey. Well, well I'm sorry. Was... It's something that you <clears throat> let go of. But still, it's, it's right. a part of your story that you're aware of. And that's okay because you got through there successfully. You right. know what I'm and, saying? And it's my story. And that's right. And you continue writing your story. So if you have a couple bad chapters in your story. Well, the bad chapters can lead to the greatest chapter. Well, who wants to read a book about everything's happy? Everything Absolutely. is Perfect. Right. I mean, there's no, if there's no drama and there's no conflict and there's no failure, yeah, there's nothing to shine the light on the successes and the positive shit. It's like without false, there'd be no truth. I do, I do things within my own parameter that most people don't really know about to deal with, with my depression. I believe it does come from that. I, I, I saw a lot of death when I was really young. Um, you know, I went through a lot of really difficult things when I was really young and I came out of just this fantastic upbringing. You do. Your parents you are, know, are wonderful uh, people. You I, have a great family. Thank you. And, and, you know, I just had this beautiful childhood and, and this beautiful thing. And I was a rough kid. The things that I, uh, witnessed and experienced through those point in my life, I believe some of it has stuck with me, but I think that for me, exploring those things, I do cold water therapy I do meditation. I do crazy workout plans like 75 hard. I also have a dark side where I get into food, where I get into alcohol. Those things cause depression as well. And so the question is, where's the core of that emotional need coming from? Like if I do something great, I want to drink. If I do something and I fail, I want to drink. Mm -hmm. If I do something great, I just want to go eat a steak and celebrate. If I have some big failure, I just want to go eat a steak and cover it up. The question becomes, where is that emotional deficiency? Because it's an emotional aspect. That's an emotion, right? Emotionally, I'm seeking something to, uh, to kind of to fill, that, fill that void. Yeah. Well, what else could I fill? Could I fill the void with something that's positive? Could I fill the void with something that's challenging? Could I fill the void with maybe looking into what that is? And so that's kind of the journey I've been going down over the last, I would say, five years. Have you ever been to a therapist before? I've been to many therapists, <laughs> many therapists. And as you say, I have a very positive, upbeat personality. Just, just naturally who I am. So it's very difficult for me to get in depth with therapists because we just usually end up having these great conversations. What up, bro? Yeah, hey, you know? man. <laughs> and then after five or six sessions, we're like friends. And, right. and then I fire, you know, and then I had a fire. I just, I, I stopped You're going fired. because I'm like, I'm not going to pay 150 bucks or whatever to come in there and talk shit. I'm not going to pay for a friend. I'm not in a, um, I going mean, you're into great. It. You want to come over and hang out, please. But the thing that has helped me most, um, I would say, is plant medicines, things like THC, things like psilocybin. I've done some trips over the last few years and, and gone into ayahuasca and, uh, and bufo. Those are the most profound experiences I've ever had. Specifically, ayahuasca has been the most profound, life-changing, perspective-changing 
experiences, religious, spiritual. I mean, just every level that you can imagine that's like below the surface. Who's your dealer? Game changer. <laughs> well, you know, I don't, I don't have anybody in the States. You know, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty illegal here. So you have to literally travel to a place um, that's outside of the United States to, to have these experiences. But I think it's huge. And, and there's a lot of research happening right now for military people with PTSD. And a lot of people have it a lot worse than I do, right? I mean, a lot of people had a much worse experience than I did. I mean, there's a, there's a high rate of suicide from people. A lot of suicide. And what I said about the darkness just coming on, all of a sudden, the only thing you can see is darkness. When you're driving around in your car, you see the stuff, but in your mind, it's just blank and it's dark and it's dread and it's just, it's just dark. It's black. It's hard to find your way out of that, save for doing something difficult. Something about doing hard things can break you away from that. And when you look at the research that's being done, they're using psilocybin, they're using different things, and it's very effective. It's working. It's helping people. There's a lot of deathbed research being done with ayahuasca and psilocybin and and different what I call medicines. And it's helping people because all of a sudden you see your divinity. You see the truth of your existence. You see the truth of your... Um, your soul? Of your soul, of how special it is that you're even here. And then you also see that when your body dies, that you don't actually die. You, you really do carry on. Your, your energy really does go to another plane. And there really is a higher level of consciousness that exists that you can tap into and you can you can see these things and and you can experience these things and then all of a sudden you realize the truth of the matter is that you have nothing to be afraid of ever ever because even in death you still have life your soul still lives and that's the truth for everybody not just you you know so there's um there's a lot of there's a lot of wisdom within us already that, that we don't tap into because we've been trained in society um, to be basically servants of the, um, of the hierarchy that we exist within. People have to understand that, um, you know, you got to do hard stuff. It's not just about getting a cush job and, you know, having your weekends off and eating whatever you want to eat and it's okay to be overweight. No, that is the path to depression. That is the path to alcoholism. That is the path to suicide. That is the path to divorce. That is the path to all these things, which can really destroy your life, taking the easy way. So I'm looking for hard things to do. I'm looking to challenge myself. I'm looking to get out of my comfort zone. And that's how I continue to propel myself. Most people could look at me and say, oh, this is a successful guy. In my own mind, I was thinking about this stuff five years ago. You see what I'm saying? Right. These are things that I've been going after for the last five years. Where I am now, am I grateful? And I'm a pre- yes, of course. But I'm, you're but you're I'm still blown having... away that I've even able to achieve what I have. Right. And yet, right now, my mind is focused on five years from now. Right. And when I arrive there, it's gonna be people are gonna be like, holy shit! I've been living there for five years already. It's just when the you take the vision. And you pump in enough hard things directed toward that, and you create reality with your thoughts. And that's something that you can't do if you're dead. Man. So we have that chance now. You know what I mean? 
again, thank you for your service. For sure, thank man. you for your perspective. And I do have to say that last rant you just went on was pretty damn powerful. So thank you. Anybody who listens to this, you might want to rewind it about <laughs> two and a half minutes and listen to it again. Preach, Ben H. Preach. I can do it. I can do it. Maybe we should do another one on that. Yeah. This is Man Fused. Man Fused out.